Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hi, I'm Keith Bose, and I'm the Managing Director of Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources owns the Kalakera asset, which is a uranium mine located in Malawi. We acquired it off Paladin Energy in March of last year. Kalakera is itself a proven producer. It operated between 2009 and 2014 and produced some in, something in the order of 11 million pounds of uranium during that period. Hello, Keith. Actually, we saw each other last week, didn't we? I was going to say we haven't spoken since since June, but we actually spoke to you last week as part of a uh, uranium panel, which was quite a good session, actually, I thought. A very good session. It was very, very enjoyable. It was nice to get the views of everyone else as well. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that discussion. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, you, got, you see, uh, you know, because we, we got an illustrious panel together of people who have actually been there and done it before, and you guys actually uh, talking to each other was the interesting bit. And so we'll, we'll put a link to that below. But we'll also put a link to our previous conversation back in June uh, below to so get a kind of catch up on some of the topics and things that we discussed then. Let's talk about what you've been up to since since June. It's, uh, it's been a kind of exciting market, hasn't it? Sput has surfaced and uh, got people excited about it since we spoke in June. What's, what's your take on what's happening there? I think it's been really exciting. I think uh, we've always had this expectation that you know, the uranium market itself is a relatively small market and uh, even one player coming in aggressively can have a significant impact on what we're seeing in the price. And that's exactly what's happened with Sprott coming in. I mean, they came in in the middle of August. The spot price at that point in time was sitting around $30 per pound. Within a period of about three or four weeks with some really aggressive buying on the spot market, they were able to get that price up to $50, $51 per pound, spent in excess of $300 million mopping up all the uh, all the spot there. So one player has a significant impact on it. And that's what, I mean, that's what we've noted over the past, you know, cycles within uranium as well. So it's been really, really good. I think as we've mentioned in the panel uh, the other day as well, that obviously the spot price is what everybody looks at. And that's really, really good. But as a company and as a, a future developer and producer, what we're looking for is the term price. And those are what those that's what we're having having a look at now. That's what we're trying to get an idea of what the term prices are going to be. Well, look, look, as a former producing asset, you know, under Paladin previously, you guys have inherited a lot of infrastructure. You're um, working your way through, you know, we'll just start. I think you just announced the feasibility is kicking off and we'll talk about it in a second. Does the action in the market of the last couple of months does that change the way that you think about how you move your project forward? Does it advance anything or is it just let's stick with the plan? At the moment, it's stick with the plan. Uh, we've always, uh, since effectively we acquired the asset last year, we've been talking about a feasibility study coming out in 2022. And as you said, we've recently announced one. It's targeted for a, uh, to come out to the market in June or July of next year. So we're keeping to the same strategy and the same timeline as we originally uh, thought about. The one thing where we may end up accelerating things if uh, the price really increases next year is not so much around the study work, but perhaps try and accelerate the refurbishment of the facility to allow us to come online a little bit quicker than we originally thought. That's where we'll probably be able to make up some time if required. Is there anyone sort of poking around? Are utilities picking up the phone and going, hey, we know you're going to get into production. We've, you've given us an indication of the timing of that, but we're seeing a tightening in the market. Can you give us updates as to how you're going to be able to accelerate it if indeed you make that decision? 
So we've initiated the conversations with a few of the utilities. And I think I mentioned previously as well, we appointed a, um, a sales and marketing executive who's actually based over in the US. And on our behalf, he started to have these discussions. Um, we haven't got into any details yet. We do recognize that the uranium market is one where you need to build up relationships build up the friendships and the confidence with the utilities prior to entering into any serious negotiations about delivery and prices and all that. And that's what we're doing at the moment. We don't have any intentions of signing any contracts this year. We certainly don't plan on doing that. Uh, we would be looking at going into or signing contracts or at least negotiating contracts uh, next year is sort of our time frame on that. Right, and and how do you go about that? Because we had Justin Garrow on last week. He was, uh, you know, he's always been quite good at explaining how contracting happens, how these how these term contracts get signed, and especially, and a, the asset has produced in the past, but you as a company have not produced yet. Is the way that utilities view you guys? They they will give you start you off something small. You prove consistency of, of a product and the ability to deliver into that contract. Then they give you a little bit more, et cetera, et cetera. So. How are you guys viewing it in terms of the pricing which you want to try and achieve? Because obviously showing that you can get a product and deliver it into market is, is the first step, gives confidence to the market, give confidence to all utilities. So give us your thinking on, on, on that. Well, I mean, for one thing, we've, we're pretty, ins I mean, as our idea is we want to sign term, term contracts. I, th I think that's important for us. And the reason why we want to do that is obviously to get surety of price, so we have confidence we can cover our costs moving forward. Now, the amount of production we put into term contracts will be dependent on our own operating costs, as well as the price of the term contracts we get, with, I suppose, theoretically, the opportunity being that we make sure that our term contracts cover our operating costs. So we're absolutely clear that we have got all the money coming in to cover our operating costs, and then maybe consider the remainder of our production going into the spot market, where we'll move with the swings in the market for our profitability. So that's one of the things we're thinking about. The other one we recognize, and you're 100% right, when we start negotiating with the utilities, we're going to start off relatively low pounds. Maybe we may not end up signing a long-term contract, and a long-term contract we normally would consider to be 10 years, but maybe it's a medium-term contract that is in the three to five-year sort of time frame with smaller amounts associated with it, but hopefully the opportunity to extend that contract assuming that we're successful into delivering it as, as required. We would also see us entering into multiple contracts. We'd want to layer our contracts. So we're not just going to one utility and with the expectation we're going to sell all of the product to that one utility. We'll have a number of utilities out there that we're working with. And we may end up with eight. We may end up with nine, 10, 12 contracts that we end up signing that will have different quantities, different timeframes associated with it. And they may even have different pricing or different pricing mechanisms associated with it as well. So we're looking at trying to make the best of what we have. And we want to make sure that we're going to cover our costs moving forward. So that's our primary focus with the way we're going to be approaching our, our marketing. Okay, and one of the things you obviously got to determine is what is the price that is economic for you for, to start? And I appreciate you could probably, you know, start some of those smaller contracts, uh, term contracts uh, at lower prices, then let's see where the market takes takes things. Um, to do that, you've got to get through some technical studies. I noticed that you've actually, you've initiated some and you specifically around ore sorting. You're getting, the, seems to be getting good recoveries. I mean, how, how are things going there? How much more work is to be done? Uh, so we have, 
So one of the things that we did um, when we announced the scoping study in October of last year, and those, these are the numbers that we've been talking to the market about. So our scoping study generated a production profile that delivered 2.4 million pounds per annum at a C1 cost of $33 per pound and an all-in sustaining cost of around $39.50 per pound. Now, that gave us a solid base case moving forward, and we were very happy with those numbers. We were very confident in them because they were uh, they use the actual real operating data from the plant. So we have a high level of confidence in both those production rates and in those numbers. But what we used the study for was to identify what were the key cost drivers and what were the key value drivers for the project. And we identified four things. One of them was the ore sorting you've mentioned. The other one is the, uh, the power cost or power supply. The existing facility runs off diesel gensets, which we know is expensive. Is there an opportunity for us to connect to the grid, look at putting some renewables in or even uh, retrofitting steam turbines onto our acid plants to recover power? We had a look at some tailings and we had a look at some acid um, recovery uh, techniques as well. And we, based on the results we've seen so far from those studies, are confident that we can reduce the C1 costs. And at the moment, we're talking maybe a 15% reduction in our C1 costs. So that would bring us below the $30 mark. That obviously carries through to the all-in sustaining costs, but we're doing a lot of work around sustaining capital as well, and specifically tailings dams. Tailings dams are very, very expensive pieces of infrastructure to put in place, and we're required, according to our current schedule, to construct a second tailings dam on site in about year five. We're looking at some opportunities like input disposal to see whether we could actually do that instead, which should be cheaper. And that'll drive our all-in sustaining costs down. So maybe we might end up with a $34 or $35 all-in sustaining costs. Once we've recognized those figures, obviously it's a lot easier for us to go out and contract and to work out what is actually the number that we need in our pricing to be able to not only be profitable, you know, money back to our shareholders, pay off our capital and all those types of things. So there's a little bit of work, work to do, but we've got some, we've got a high level of confidence in terms of where we could end up. Okay, so that's interesting. So you've obviously done a lot of work and to date, and that will feed into the feasibility study. You're aiming for that to be published when? Uh, June or July next year. Okay, so, okay, not, not, not too far away. So you're actually not that far away from being able to have conversations around, you know, or trying to understand what the funding costs could be. Conversation that we've seen a lot in in, in West Africa uh, and, and Africa more broadly, uh, where you you are, Dana Malawi, is um, getting African funding in place rather than going to the international markets. Is that something as part of your ESG, or you know, is that something that you would are more likely to consider? From the funding perspective, I, th I think one of the benefits that we have as a project is our actual funding requirements are relatively low. So if you have a look at our scoping study, in our scoping study, all we have to do is refurbish the plant. We have no intention of increasing production rates or anything like that. So our refurbishment costs are around 50 million US dollars. Now, probably by the time you finish the feasibility study, if we're considering connecting to the national grid and all sorting and all that stuff, we would expect those costs to go up a little bit, but we're not talking hundreds of millions of dollars. We're talking 70 or 80 million dollars. If you compare that to our current market cap, so we sit in US dollars around $230 million, we don't see any issue raising that sort of capital, whether that be through equity or through debt or a combination of both. 
Raising capital for us, I don't think is going to be an issue at all. And whether we do it through traditional methods here in Australia or whether, as you mentioned, maybe we go to someone like the African Bank or, you know, look at one of those funds that are uh, focused very much on development in Africa and use those um, and, and use that as a source of fund. That could well be, uh, well be an option for us. But f- for us, capital is not a risk, we don't think. No, no, I don't. I don't think it is actually. You know, we, we've obviously had a look at you. You know, I don't think it is. I just it's in in the context of this kind of ESG narrative. Uh, there, you know, mining companies upping the game, trying to do things the right way. You know, African projects getting funded by African banks, and then that feeding into you know African economies. It seems like de rigueur the right thing to do. And I just just wondered where you where your head was at. And obviously, you know, your background too. Yeah, I mean, we've done a couple of projects in Africa and we have approached the predominantly South African banks that we've gone to for funding. And I mean, that would certainly be part of the mix. And I think you're right, this idea of having an African bank fund an African project that's going to generate wealth for the African countries and all that kind of stuff, it's a really good idea. And it fits exactly in with the ESG profile that we're doing. And we certainly would consider those options as well moving forward. Right, okay. And just in, just in terms of the, the refurbishment component, so you, you obviously decided to do that. When do you kind of press the button on that? Because and, and how long is it going to take and what is the actual cost, do you think? So the, the way that we're looking at things at the now, now, and this is, you know, this is what we've been working on for the last six months or so, so it doesn't take into account any significant movement in the uranium price over the next year or so. But if we get into a position where we finish our feasibility study in the middle of next year and we get a really good result out of it, that we, you know, high level of confidence in terms of production rates and uh, costs and all that, we would expect to spend the next six months negotiating uh, capital and negotiating our contracts such that by the end of next year, we will be in a position where we could make a final um, investment decision. Now, based on the work we did in the scoping study, it would appear that the refurbishment of the plant will cost somewhere between, sorry, will take somewhere between 12 and 15 months to complete. So assuming that's still valid, we would then be able to start producing uranium from the asset in the first quarter of 2024. So that's sort of the timeline that we're working to at at the moment. It's kind of interesting, actually, what's going on in the market. We've had this kind of period of of increasing costs in terms of, you know, from from shipping and materials and, uh, you know, across the board, the costs are going up. And you must be looking at the the scope and setting going, crikey, we might have to have have a look at this. But it's coming back off again. The prices are coming down again. Might be okay. We're hoping that... (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I mean, obviously, COVID in some ways impacted a lot of these shipping costs and all those types of things. We're hoping that in a year's time or so, you know, the globe will be back a little bit to normal again and perhaps the shipping routes will be open and all this, you know, all these containers sitting in the wrong ports and all that maybe would have corrected by then and we're going to see some of the costs, the costs coming down. Logistics is one of the things that we have recognized as being an issue. And we're specifically asked within our feasibility study that an independent and separate logistics study be carried out for us so we can actually understand what, what the issues are. Because we're a landlocked country or because Malawi is a landlocked country, obviously, when we're going to be bringing stuff in from internationally, what's the best way to bring it in? Do we bring it through Dar es Salaam? Do we bring it in through uh, uh, Mozambique, whether that be in Put- uh, Maputo? Or do we bring it up from South Africa? Or the other alternative is because we know when we're actually operating, we're going to be shipping out of Wolfus Bay at the moment. 
do we on the backswing bring stuff in from Walfus Bay would be one of the other questions. So there's quite a bit of work that needs to be done around there. And I do recognize that as being an important uh, key to, uh, uh, to de-risking the project. Okay, so um, I do want to talk about cobalt and I do want to talk about rare earths, but just just kind of finish and focus on, focus on the uranium component. Exploration, it's already a big, large brownfield uranium uh, asset that you, you've uh, acquired there. You've already got quite a few pounds, but are you going to continue through the drill bit to expand that resource, the uranium resource out? Yes, we are. So we've got the 37.5 million pounds at the moment, which is what the scoping study was based on. But really on the back of looking through the historical resource, looking at the geological models, looking at the block models and all that, we did identify that with the actual Calacara resource that looked like there were extensions to the mineralization that are outside of our current Whittle pit optimizations. So really on the back of that, we saw there could be some easy wins there that if we were able to extend that mineralization out further, and able to push the pit shells back, so the Whittle pit shells back in our optimization work, we could obviously collect more material within our pit shells, which then feed into our production schedules. So really on the back of that, we made a decision to do a small exploration program this year. So it's a 5,000 meter RC drill program. It's probably the first drill program that's actually been done at Calacara for something like 15 years, I would think. So we've just finished that program, um, just finished the uranium portion of it. I'll talk about that. Um, we're waiting for the results to come, come back from that. But from the guys on site that tell me they've seen some encouraging intercepts. So hopefully we'll be able to report back on that as well in the next few months. And then we'll do an update to our resource model. To be honest, I don't think we're talking, you know, leaps and bounds in terms of the increase of that resource, but it'll be nice to show that there is growth still associated with it. And we'll come up with a new resource that we'll use in the, um, in the feasibility study. But the other important thing, thing I want to talk about is our greenfield potential as well. So we've just focused on our brownfield effectively around the pit. But when we acquired the asset of Paladin, we also got a number of exploration licenses. And we have spent the last couple of months looking through that historical data as well. And there looks like there's some really interesting stuff on there. And our expectations that next year, we'll probably go and do some drilling on these exploration leases to see whether there's an opportunity for us to develop a pit in those areas. Now, some of those exploration leases are very, very close to uh, our existing mining license, so we could easily truck the material across. Some of them are a bit further afield. So obviously, we need to understand how we can all fit that together. But that's part of the work that we're doing at the moment. So our intention is not to be just comfortable with what we have at the moment, but we want to work continuously in terms of growing that resource. Okay. And I guess you, you've got to choose the pace at which you move because you don't want to be burning through cash when you've got the size of the prizes, get this thing in, in production by 2024. So how much, how much money are you allocating to that? And how much, in fact, how much cash have you got today? So this 5,000 meter RC drill program, the initial phase of it has cost us half a million dollars. So it hasn't been an excessive amount of dollars. Once we've had a look at the results, we might do a couple of more drill holes, so we might expand that and do. It'll be less than a million dollars we're going to spend spend on drilling this year is my expectation. The majority of the dollars has been spent on the feasibility study and all the technical work associated with that to be able to deliver to the market next year, the feasibility study, which I think is a key document the market is waiting for. Right. You've just got a, you've got another million bucks in by the full divestiture of the cobalt asset. I guess that pays for that. But, but just, just the question, how much cash are you sitting on now? At the end of June, we had 28 million Australian dollars. Right. Does that take you through the okay. end of the feasibility or not? 
It'll take us through until the end of next year, actually. So it'll cover our exploration costs, even the expanded exploration. It'll cover our feasibility study. It covers our care and maintenance costs on the plant, and it covers our corporate overheads as well. So you're right, though, with the Hylia divestment, we've got a million dollars in cash, but we also uh, received a number of shares in Sunrise Metals, which was the company that acquired the asset off us. And we have actually done an off-market deal for someone to acquire those shares off us as well. So we're getting about another one point. $3 million from the sale of those shares as well. And we still have a number of options out there in the market that are sitting at about $0.04 cents exercise price. Those have been continuously coming in for quite a while. And we expect to see the rest of them coming in within the next year as well. And those options have almost funded our overheads for the last three quarters. Wow. Okay. That'd be interesting. Um, should we talk rare us? Meleni, how do you pronounce that? Melenji. 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 Yeah, Melenji, yeah. Jay, Jay is yeah. so tricky. So this has been, yeah, so this has been a, been a real a real interesting one for us. Um, so Melenji Hills themselves, they sit about two kilometers to the north of the Calacara pit. So they're still within our existing mining license. So we're not going into any new ground or anything like that. It's on our ML. Now, Paladin Energy identified these rare earth anomalies when they were doing their regional exploration program. They did a little bit of work around them, showed something interesting. And we went back there last year. We did some of our own mapping. We did some of our own geophysics and we did some of our own trenching as well. So we put a number of trenches in there. And from those trenches, we collected some one meter composite samples, which we sent off for assay. Now we collected about 70 samples. 22 of them came back as being mineralized samples. So I'm talking about rare earth mineralization. And the average total REO grade in those 22 samples was 8%. And we were having grades as high as 16% in some of those samples. So it looked like really high grade stuff. When we went and had an, a look in a bit more detail about it, of course, we worry about the assemblage, what are the different rare earth elements you have there. And we were averaging about one and a half to maybe 1.6, 1.7% of the critical rare earth elements. And a maximum, I think it was three and a half percent. When we, dealt, when we dived in a little bit deeper, we saw that the two elements, neodymium and presidium, which, are the, which together with terbium and dysprosium are the main elements that you use in the uh, permanent magnet industry, we had a significant amount of neodymium presidium in our material. And we know that those minerals, as I said, along with the other ones in the permanent magnet industry, make up about 90% of the value of the market. So it looks like there's something really interesting there for us. On the back of those results, and when we designed our exploration program, we initially said of the 5,000 meters, circa 4,000 goes into uranium, and we'll put, a, we'll put 1,000 meters into the Melenji Hills to have a look at the rare earths. So the drill rig is up in Melenji Hills at the moment. It's about halfway through that program. We expect to complete the program in the next couple of weeks. Um, we also did some more trenching and a bit more mapping as well. We'll go through the same thing. We'll send some samples off for assay and have a look at them. And once we understand the size of the footprint and also the depth of this mineralization, I think we'll then be in a good position to understand what we have over here or what we have and how best we can generate value for the company from it. Is it something we would look at developing ourselves? Maybe we go into a JV with someone. There's a number of other rare earth companies around in Tanzania and also down in the southern part of Malawi as well. Or we could actually spin it out into another company. So some really interesting stuff there. 
Uh, we need a bit more time to actually really work out what we have, though, before we can enter any, any, uh, into any discussions like that. Yeah, you kind of need to work out enough of what you've got. You don't need to spend too much time and effort on it. It's very topical at the moment. Obviously, we, we've been looking at the kind of critical, critical minerals hubs in the US, trying to be independent of any uh, China supply. Um, and yeah, there are a few players in Angola uh, and, and Tanzania as well. It'd be interesting to sort of see how Africa comes out this. Can it, can it create its own critical minerals hub or is it going to be totally reliant on selling into Europe or, or, or the US? Or indeed, do you do what you normally do and take Chinese money? Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, obviously, our project, our rare earth project is still very much in the infancy. But in Tanzania, you've got peak resources and down in the southern part of Malawi, you've got Makanga resources and both of them have got projects. I mean, Peak's been around for quite a while as a Makanga and both of them have got uh, definitive feasibility studies out at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how they plan on doing it. I know just from conversations and what I'm hearing, Makanga is going to produce a concentrate in Malawi and ship it overseas, and whether that be to the UK or to Poland. And I think Peak's also got the same sort of idea. They're going to be producing a fairly high-level product, which they can then send off for separation and all that. Now, whether we can participate with them in something, I'm not sure, but I'll be really interested to see how they're planning on, you know, what their final decision is in terms of their uh, production plans. Yeah, interesting space. We'll be watching closely with that, but you've got optionality and you've got the cash to actually move that forward for a bit. Um, like just, just maybe let's wrap, wrap it up here because it's kind of clear that the market is getting a little bit heated now with, with uranium. Between now and the end of the year, what's your expectations um, with regards to what, what we're going to be hearing about? Or do you think that you, you'd rather just keep your head down and let people do the talking? Yeah, it's been an interesting couple of weeks, hasn't it? And um, I, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the talk about Sprott coming in and the prices going up to the $50, $51 per mark. They've obviously drifted down over the last week or so. Um, the uranium market itself is quite opaque, so you can never get a real answer for anything when you ask questions about it. But I mean, there does seem to be maybe some traders have come on and are, you know, have maybe bought up prior to the Sprott investment fund coming on and now they're looking at taking some profits and maybe that might be the reason for the drop. We've heard some other things about maybe some of the Japanese companies are starting to unload some of their inventory into the market, which has perhaps resulted in this drop-off. Um, so there's been a couple of things out there. My expectation is, I mean, the uranium price always goes up and down. I mean, if you look over any historical time frame, there's always ups and downs in it. My expectation is that it will continue to rise within a within a you know within a specific in, um, envelope. I would hope that by the end of the year we're in the upper forties, maybe I would have thought. Sort of my thing, and I expect them to increase uh, um, next year as well as 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 you move on. I think the I think the medium term and long term thematics or catalysts behind the uranium price uh, price haven't changed. The presence of Sprott has obviously impacted on the short-term stuff, um, but the medium and long-term uh, catalysts are still there, and I think they're still sound, and I still think we're going to see a consistent increase in the uranium price over the you know, coming future. So I'm still very full of confidence in the uranium price. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, that's sort of interesting you're saying, like people trying to front-run the Sprott uh, Fiscal Uranium Trust there by... by that's interesting. It's, it, I always feel it's like playing chess, but you can only see half the board. 
Oh, <laughs> I think you're lucky if you see half, to be honest. I think you might be see a tenth of the board. <laughs> That's like a good day at the office. Well, look, yeah. um, I, let's, let's see how this thing plays out. But, but for you guys, stay in the course, FS by mid next year, some point, um, getting all the pieces in place. Sounds like you've got the money to do it as well. So look, stay in touch. Let us know how you get on. Keith, always enjoy, enjoy a conversation with you guys. No, great. Thanks very much. It was good to see you again, man. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.